Get ready to meet the trailblazers driving the human change behind our clean energy future. This week on Energy Trailblazers, we meet Dr. Margaret Heffernan, a formidable educator, fierce entrepreneur and seasoned CEO, reshaping the way that we live, work and lead. Margaret proposes that climate change will not be solved by governments, but by people who start where they are, with what they have, and take small actions that become bigger than themselves. Margaret says climate change is driven by people being too busy to care and working too hard to have the conversations that matter. We believe these conversations about our clean energy future should be as relevant around a kitchen or classroom table as they are around boardroom or political tables. We're here to fuel a new energy conversation, and Margaret agrees, it starts with you. Well, Margaret Heffernan, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Trailblazers. I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you. I guess where I wanted to start is you've had a remarkable career. You've been a producer at the BBC. You've been a CEO many, many times over, written six books now. I'm interested to begin with, is there a central kind of line of inquiry or motivation that has been a you know kind of constant throughout your career? I think that's a great question. Thank you. I think, you know, at the beginning of my career, I don't think I was very conscious of this. But I think throughout my career, I've been kind of gently obsessed by the notion of how do you get the best out of people that you work with? Why do organizations so often suppress the best of the people inside them? Why is it that lots of very smart, eager, energetic people go to work and end up feeling neither smart nor energetic nor creative. So I think really how to how to get the very best out of very creative people is absolutely a straight line through everything I've ever done. I love that. And, and that gentle obsession, which I love as a phrase, I'm going to borrow that, uh, being gently obsessed with that topic, what has been some of the more interesting insights you've discovered? Like what have you learnt in trying to answer that question around why those phenomena happen? Why is it that you think these good people are suppressed and we don't see more people proactively pursuing change and those sorts of things? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there are obviously lots and lots of reasons. I think partly we do very little in our education systems to develop creativity. In fact, I think most of the education systems that I'm familiar with do their best to um, get rid of it. I think that, in fact, what we learn to do, and the human brain is very good at this, is to deduce what is it other people want from me and to do that. And that sometimes might be creative, but mostly it's, it's what I think of as not thinking for yourself. And I think of creativity as thinking for yourself. Um, so we become pleasers. And... Um, and that's very often very dissatisfying for oneself. And it's very dissatisfying actually as a boss to be surrounded by pleasers because I never wanted people to do what I told them to. I wanted that people to take a challenge and come up with a better answer than I had. And that's on some level the whole premise of organizational life, right? Which is you bring lots of different kinds of people together and you give them hard problems and collectively they can do more than individuals alone. So to have to be surrounded by people who who are just trying to think, well, what is it you want me to do means you can't even begin to have that conversation. Um, a lot of this, I think a lot of my thinking has been very informed by working at the beginning of my career at the BBC with some extremely, probably exceptionally creative people 
and kind of learning how they worked and how to work with them. And understanding that required giving people quite a lot of freedom, giving them really interesting questions or challenges, and being willing to have a lot of argument, dispute, exploration, contradiction around that process. And the very best people I worked with, some of whom you know are some of the finest actors, writers, musicians in the world, they were exceptionally good at that. And I think I I started to understand that that was kind of the heart and soul of really rewarding work. And it's I think on some level, you know, I've I've really sought to find places or create places where that was possible for everybody. I want to explore, and there's so much in your writing and even what you just shared there around this idea of what holds us back from doing those yeah. things. And a common theme amongst your exploration of willful blindness, but also that that conflict and that version to conflict. I found it really interesting in some of your work, you talk about the fact that there's a study where 85% of executives said they had issues they were afraid to raise. Right. I mean, how big is fear in this? What is it that's holding us back from actually, you know, stopping being people pleasers, doing what we feel is right, stepping into those tough conversations? Yeah, I think it's actually huge. And I think it's much better uh, than most people imagine. I think it's much worse than um, most bosses, in fact, want. And I think many, many managers and so-called leaders really have no idea Um how frightened they or their organizations make people. Now, some of this, to be fair, can't be laid at their door. If you have um, an environment, for example, where uh, jobs are very precarious, unemployment is very high, people are carrying a lot of personal debt, then people are scared, right? They just, because they're under immense stress. And this was very much what I saw just in the run-up to the banking crisis and very much worse afterwards, which is um, certainly in the US and UK, you had a lot of people with very big mortgages, a quite insecure working environment. And in that situation, people are just going to be super careful because actually, although they haven't thought about it that way, they've put a lot on the line. I think there's a great deal about hierarchy that makes people afraid. The worst example, of course, is forced ranking, you know, where you're ranking people all the time and therefore judging them. And and that always carries with it an implicit risk that you'll be thrown out. So although forced ranking was invented as a way to motivate people, what it seems in fact to have done was to make most people afraid. And there's a ton of neurological evidence to suggest generally people do not do their best thinking and certainly not their bravest thinking when they're afraid. I think a lot of leaders are very insensitive to the way in which their exercise of power makes people afraid. Mm. And it's, it's quite interesting, in fact, I think how few leaders really think about the impact of the power that they carry on other people. So that's part of it. Um, I think, you know, there are other pieces of it. You know, again, it depends a lot on the kind of background that you came from, whether you came from a family where, you know, people could have, as it were, friendly conflict Mm -hmm. and friendly debate because that was interesting and how far you grew up in a household where, you know, you didn't dare contradict anybody 
you know, for fear of getting into a lot of trouble. So background has a lot to do with it also. But if you're working in an organization where you don't see many people offering an idea or raising a concern, then you will quite unconsciously take in the message that, well, that's not the kind of thing people do here, so I'd better not do it. So I think it's actually quite a hard thing for a boss or a manager to create an environment where people really do feel not only is it okay to raise my issues and concerns, but actually this is what people want me to do. This is what I'm here for. I think that's such a good point. I feel like there's this growing but still in many ways early body of, uh, I guess, terminology and thinking around psychological safety, which is that term we're now using in business to talk about that culture you're describing, you know, feeling safe to take risks, to speak up, to offer that counter-opinion. I mean, part of it strikes me is what you've talked about there is having the awareness of the baseline of, of your culture. You made the point that a lot of leaders probably aren't aware of the level of fear in their organisation. And part two is how do you actually start putting these ideas into practice? Because I hear a lot of talk about the term, but I think the reality of culture is still a long way from actually that being a lived experience for most people. So I wanted to ask you, for leaders that are listening to this conversation who are going, that's a challenge I need to take on and step into for my organisation, what advice have you got for how to raise awareness or get a baseline in your organization, but also to start building that cultural competency? Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I think that it's it, psychological safety is a thing everybody talks about. It's, I've, I've met very few people who really know what it means or are prepared to do what it takes. So people will feel psychologically safe around you if they feel you know them, if you feel that they understand you. They will feel psychologically safe if the social contract, not to mention the literal contract, gives them an element of security. So they will feel extremely unsafe in the working conditions of the gig economy, right? Um, because they know that a few bad reviews or customer you know, comments or three stars instead of four stars or whatever you know, may terminate their, their engagement. Um, but I think fundamentally, people mostly understand that it's safe to raise issues and concerns when they see the people around them doing it. Mm -hmm. And when I was running um, tech companies in the US, I generally had, I brought people with me who'd worked with me before because they knew it. And by their exercise of their own freedom, new people that we hired could see easily and quickly that this was okay. And once they saw that it was okay, they were willing to try it. And once they tried it and didn't get their head bitten off, you know, that's actually what made them feel safe. And I think really that's the way it works. Everybody in the world says, you know, I'll never fire the messenger. They fire messengers all the time. You only have to look at the tragic, terrible history of whistleblowers um, to see that, generally speaking, messengers are in a very precarious job, right? Um, so you have, you have to mean it. You have to say it. You have to sometimes you have to provoke the argument so that people can see that that's what is valued. And for all the talk about psychological safety, I don't see very many people actually doing that. You also have to be prepared not to blame people when they try stuff with good intention and it goes wrong. And um, and this can be quite tricky. 
Um, I mean, I've certainly been in a situation where employees have let me down and, you know, the instinct is to, is to start blaming them. And it takes a certain amount of discipline to step back and say, okay, did they intend this to go wrong? No. Um, did, you know, are they generally incompetent? No. So why did it go wrong? You know, did I communicate badly? Did they have too little information? Were we all moving too fast? Let's just learn from it and move on. And mostly people don't even take the time to learn from it. Never mind have the strong stomach then to move on. But I'm, you know, there's a very famous story about Henry Ford, who, um, whose CFO made some gigantic um, error in terms of, I think, currency hedging. And, um, and, you know, equivalent to what would today be millions of dollars and was asked okay. why he didn't follow the, the, why he didn't fire the individual to which he said, well, I've just invested millions of dollars in his education. Why on earth would I fire him? You know, <laughs> and I, I think this is, this is really, really important because certainly here in the UK, there's a gigantic blame scapegoating culture. And I think it's the easiest thing in the world to say, well, responsibility means that whoever made the mistake carries the can. Mm. Mistakes are usually a concatenation of errors. And it's important to unpack those before you jump to hasty conclusions, however good those hasty conclusions might make you feel. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love that point around uh, I, particularly that very different postmortem, you know, in terms of the way that you pause yourself in the moment, you ask different questions and unpack why something went wrong. And also that piece you mentioned there around role modeling. So not just saying, but doing, leading by example, provoking the conversations, hiring people that get and can demonstrate that culture. One of the things that struck me when you mentioned blame culture there and, and also earlier in your answer, kind of the gig economy one of the things that strikes me about your writing and your speeches that I've had the great joy of indulging in over recent weeks was the, I feel you've got a very optimistic tone about the future. But when you mention those two cultural pieces there, it strikes me that are we at risk of fear becoming more dominant? You know, the gig economy work becoming more precarious. We know there's an enormous growth in, in kind of that that temporary gig work, uh, increasing, you know, challenges around the future of the economy and also this, this blame culture, you know, do you think we, we've got a real challenge on our hands when it comes to what, what leadership and culture and the sort of leadership we need for the world, the way it's potentially challenged right now by those phenomena? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I may be optimistic, but, um, I'm definitely not starry eyed. And I think that there's a huge amount in management trends that I see currently that actually are exactly what we don't need. I think our gigantic fascination with surveillance and being able to surveil our employees is pretty much a catastrophe. If, if you want people not to feel afraid, that's a road you don't go down. If you don't trust people enough to know that, to know that they're just gonna get the job done, then you shouldn't have hired them. Mm. And if you think the only way to be, feel comfortable that they're, that they're working hard enough is to surveil them, then either you're a very, very bad manager or you've got very, very, very poor people. Um, so I think that's, that's a catastrophe. It's a blatant statement of distrust. Mm. And if you don't trust people, they won't trust you, so they will be afraid. I think our increasing dependence on metrics is part of that in the sense that I think it's been quite an interesting thing that as we've been 
you know, first of all, economics ate our brains in the last 20 years and convinced us that everything that mattered could be measured, which is clearly, clearly untrue. And also that only the things that can be measured matter, which is even more untrue. But perhaps most insidiously convinced us that if we didn't have data to prove something before we did it or after we'd done it, then we shouldn't do it. So I can only argue for this strategy if I can assemble, you know, a mountain of data proving it's going to work before we try it. That's pretty much the opposite of innovation, actually. If you know exactly what's going to happen before you do it, guess what? It can't possibly be new. <laughs> so I think it's kind of crippled our thinking, this notion that I can only work from data. My own creativity, imagination, instinct is useless. And so if I can't win the argument before I've done the experiment, there's no point doing the experiment. I think this is a really deeply, deeply negative trend. On the other hand, I think what's been quite interesting about the pandemic has been that it catapulted many leaders into a situation where they simply had to trust people because they weren't around them, they weren't near them, they couldn't micromanage everybody. And overall, what the research has shown is that their employees way outperformed expectations. You know, they, the people on the front line knew what to do in ways that their bosses didn't because they were talking to people. They were talking to customers or suppliers or whatever. And that with actually less oversight, people did better. This is a really important lesson to be learning. I think equally, companies that depended on gig economies soon found that, guess what, lots of people didn't like working that way and are not coming back. Right, that they suddenly realize, wow, it's even worse than I thought it was. The social contract is really unbalanced. I don't want to work this way anymore. I think it's astounding that in the last couple of months, four million Americans have quit their jobs. You know? I mean, I'm just astounded by that. And lots of people have changed careers. Lots of people woke up and thought, actually, I don't like working this way. And I think it's been quite a healthy, strangely, in such a sick time, a healthy response to some really bad management practices that were really instituted partly to give HR some power and partly to alleviate the anxiety that bosses feel that maybe they're not very good, which they then project onto their employees to start imagining, well, maybe they're not very good. So I see strangely some rather kind of encouraging signs as we start reconsidering how work is going to work. And what I hope is that people take those seriously and they don't just think, oh, let's get back to normal because actually normal pre-pandemic was pretty awful. I love that phrase, reconsidering how work is going to work. And you touched on, you know, these well-worn adages like what you measure matters. You know, part of that, it just these, these easy, convenient mantras for leaders to hang their hat on and to think about and to drive decision-making. Um, yeah. What would you encourage leaders who are reconsidering how work should work to replace thinking like that and your point around needing all the data before you make a decision? What are some of the new habits and practices leaders need to be building? Yeah. Well, I think the first one is going to sound blindingly obvious, but it's astounding how little it happens, which is I think leaders need to learn to talk to people. 
Um, I'm astounded. I mentor a number of CEOs and I teach on various leadership programs. I'm astounded at the degree to which surveys have replaced conversations. Mm. You know, we have all these pulse surveys, you know, what's the mood of the company? We'll do a survey, right? There's a problem. There are many problems with surveys. The first is the people who fill them out are a very particular group of people. So they're not telling you about the whole company. The second is most people don't really believe that they're anonymous. The third is that they produce numbers which won't tell you why. They might tell you what, and I think that's arguable, mm. but they won't tell you why. And furthermore, they are just more work, right? It's like, oh, God, as well as everything else today, I've also got to fill out this survey. Um, and so they, the, you know, what it will do is it will show you the trend of feelings among the people who feel like completing your survey. But they won't really tell you what does it feel like to work in this company. You know, do you talk about your job when you get home, when you're sitting at dinner with your kids? If do you get home in time for dinner with your kids, by the way? Mm. And if you do, do you talk about your work? And if you don't, why not? These are very real conversations if you want to know the impact of the working environment on your workforce. And it's interesting, I chair a company here in the UK. And they were about to do a big survey. And I said, oh, please don't. Please, please, please don't. Pull some people together and have a conversation with them. And the CEO came back to me and she said, I can't believe what a difference that made. We've been doing pulse surveys for the last year. And I didn't learn anything from them. And the, uh, spending an hour with a handful of people, I have so much better a sense of how things are going and where the stresses are and where the strains are and what people are happy about and what they're not happy about. So the first thing I would say is please retrain yourself and your <laughs> managers to talk to people and learn how to listen to them. Listen to what they're not saying. Listen to the issues that they tiptoe around. You know, really, really start listening. The whole workforce has a phenomenal amount of knowledge in its head that is going going to waste. The second thing I'd think of is, you know, the big job of leadership is knowing to ask the right questions. So instead of asking the question, which many are asking, which is, what's the shape, what's the future of work? Ask people, how do you want to work? And don't ask them as, a, as if they're all the same. There's a data analytics company in the US called SAS Institute. Now, SAS gives every single person their own office. They never fell into the foolhardy trap of open plan offices for everybody. They give everybody their own office except the sales team. And the sales team works in open plan offices because that's what they said they wanted. So they didn't think, well, it, you know, either everybody's open plan or nobody is. They said, okay, fair enough. The sales team has a very particular culture because sales teams always do. And this is what they want. So it's okay. We can have a blended economy. Maybe your marketing team wants to do full-time remote. Maybe your sales team wants to do hybrid working. Maybe your engineers really like coming into the office and working where it's quiet. I don't know. But don't assume these different tribes of people are all the same and want the same thing. And, you know, be prepared to pay attention to what's working well and what isn't. 
and to recognize that although the working from home thing was a short, sharp experiment, well, not short, but unexpected, an unplanned experiment, you know, the going back to work is is going to be quite a long experiment. Everybody's going to learn a lot and um, and people's minds will change. What works in the first three months may not be what works long term and what works for some people won't work for others. And you're going to have to figure out, you know, what is the social contract between your company and its workforce? But I think increasingly, and I've written a lot about this in my most recent book, Uncharted, I think leaders have to be tremendous conveners. They need to have an instinct for who do I need to convene around what issues and how do we listen really carefully to have enough understanding to make good decisions. I love that point. And Margaret, in your answer there, you talked about things that seem blindingly obvious and yet aren't yeah. common practice or, or common sense even. You know, I guess as the, the joke goes that common sense isn't all that common. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you about you've written a, a number of wonderful books and, and one of them is uh, Willful Blindness. <laughs> and, and as you know, the kind of key thrust of, of this series is really around climate and our energy future. I wanted to touch on you've described climate change as our biggest blind spot and you've said it's now at crisis point. How is a topic that it's seemingly so universal, it's in front of us, we're interacting with the reality of it every day. How does willful blindness apply to that topic and, and what can we learn from what you've discovered about how to open our eyes uh, yeah. to topics like climate change? Yeah. Well, I think certainly in an organisational setting, I mean, I ask the question all the time, why is it we've known about climate change for nearly 40 years? And for the most part, we've done vanishingly little. Why? Well, part of it's around short-term thinking. People are just thinking, especially CEOs whose tenure is you know, very short these days. Um, I can't make an impact over the short term on climate change, so, so I'll just ignore it. It's easier to ignore it. It's a very, very complex subject. I'd have to educate myself and then I'd have to put in place strategies that will way outlast me and I'm really busy. So I just won't bother. And busyness is a prime driver of climate change. You know, everybody's overloaded, so that means they can't, there's lots that will get ignored. And the big, hard, difficult things are the things most likely to get ignored. If you don't talk about it or raise it or make it important, everybody will implicitly take it for granted that you're not allowed to talk about it. So nobody will raise the subject. So that means your silence is perpetuated by everybody else's silence. I think there's also, you know, as I've written about, um, there's such a thing as bystander behavior, which is the more people who see something going wrong, the less likely it is that anybody will do anything about it because they assume, well, somebody's going to do something about it, because after all, everybody knows about it. So somebody will do something. It just isn't going to be me. So this is a diffusion of responsibility. We're all pretty conformist. So if we see everybody doing that, that's what everybody does. Uh, the fear of conflict absolutely plays into this. And I think there's something else, um, which is I think it is so unbelievably frightening that it's much easier to look away. And just because it's, I mean, if you really, really have a strong stomach and you think through what this means, 
it's very, very frightening. It's not something, it's not on a scale that we generally feel comfortable talking about. Um, and let's not forget that there have been very, very well-funded organizations striving hard to get us to ignore it and to persuade us it's really not a problem or, oh, it's, you know, hundreds of years in the future. Don't worry about it. We'll have solved it by then. I mean, quite a lot of very well-funded, very deliberate propaganda encouraging people to be willfully blind. I mean, I would also say that I think, and I, I know the scientific community has done a lot of heart searching on this, that the way in which scientists by and large have talked about about climate change has been pretty user unfriendly mm. and pretty much made people feel if they weren't experts that they couldn't have a view. And I think it's a, a tragic example of a failure of cultural translation from a science mindset, if you like, to a more accessible mindset. Now, thank goodness, you know, people came along have come along, you know, from Al Gore to Greta Thunberg, who are better cultural translators and can kind of cut through that mumbo jumbo. But that's, we've had to wait for that. And, um, and the waiting has cost us dear. And right now, my observation is, everybody knows, everybody is thinking about it. Everybody does want to do something about it. And they have no idea where to start. And so they're paralyzed by an overload of ideas. You know, should I buy an electric car? Should I get a smaller house? Should I stop buying new clothes? Should I go vegan? You know, should I stop drinking? Should I stop traveling? You know, what, what should I plant more trees? I mean, they're just overwhelmed. And they tend to think that if they don't have a perfect plan in mind, they can't get started. So that's a failure really to understand complex systems, which are nonlinear. So actually where you start doesn't matter, in fact. So I think, you know, where we are now is as citizens, we have to understand that our governments are not going to do enough unless we make them. That, I mean, in England, we have a government that says we're going to be a world leader in dealing with climate change, but they don't have a single coherent plan. They have, I mean, and they make all sorts of decisions that are antithetical to their so-called strategy. I think we assume that the government either doesn't know what it's doing or doesn't know what to do. Um, other countries are a little more fortunate in their governments. Other countries are even more unfortunate in their governments. So I think we should take it as read that don't expect that government is going to solve this problem for you. So then you have to start thinking about, okay, what is in my power to do? If I'm in a company, how can I reach out to all the other people in the company who I'm sure are really concerned about this and start a conversation going? So this becomes something everybody talks about all the time. If I'm in marketing, how do I make sure my marketing spend is environmentally productive and regenerative, not extractive? How do I deal with my suppliers so that that encourages them to change how they spend their time, effort, money, and resources? Anywhere you sit, you have an opportunity to impact the problem, however tiny it is. And my experience is that when you start doing this on however small a scale, 
you find other people who care, then you feel less alone, mm. and suddenly lots of things become possible. But if you don't start, you don't find those people. You just are paralyzed with fear, as I think millions of people really are now. I love that encouragement just to start asking questions, talking to people, making those small choices we can all make in our households, in our team, in what it is that we're in charge of every single day and and being really intentional about it and the idea that that is going to build a a collective army because I think you're so right. So many of us look at this and it is overwhelmingly large, it is scary, and it's easy when that happens to kind of want to pull the doona over your head and abdicate responsibility and go, that's above my pay grade, that's the government's responsibility, what have you. And as you've written about extensively, those small actions make an enormous amount of difference. I mean, your insights on culture and just how significant they can be in creating momentum and tipping points, I think is something all of us should take encouragement from. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's a young woman I know because she was a PhD student of my husband's and she went and worked at works at a big pharma company. You know, and she was very struck by the degree to which there was no conversation about climate change. So she went to her manager and said, how come we're not talking about this? He said, well, nobody really has responsibility and da, da, da. And she said, well, can I be responsible for it in <laughs> our department? And can you give me some, allocate some of my to do this so she did that so then other people in the company think oh well, that department's doing that why don't we have somebody like that and suddenly this spirals i mean i'll give you a really really ludicrous example um you know i live in a very small village of about 700 people and i'm a parish councillor because i just wanted to contribute in some way and um and so i I asked people, I started talking to people in the village um, about what their concerns. And it was clear to me that people were concerned but didn't know where to start. And so we organized, or I organized, a litter picking session. So we all get together, we get litter pickers, and we scour the village and we clear all the rubbish out of it. Because although we're a small rural village, it's amazing how many you know soda cans and mm. plastic bottles seem to get dumped along the roadside. Well, actually, what happened was when we all got together to do that and we started talking about why were we doing it and the rubbish that we picked up, could we recycle the bottles and the cans? You know, that led to a much bigger conversation about, okay, so what else can we do? So then those people who were interested got together in the pub for a drink one night and said, well, we could be doing this and we could be doing it. And suddenly all sorts of stuff becomes possible just because we've found each other that the people who cared found each other, which of course was even more difficult in lockdown. Right? Mm. And and so now there's all sorts of stuff going on to the point that you know, there's a part of me that thinks, oh my God, what have I started, <laughs> right? But, um, but, it's, but it certainly makes me feel less despairing. Mm. And it's amazing actually how many things people can do and want to do when they feel they're not doing it all by themselves. And so, you know, I think it really matters to just, it doesn't matter how small the thing, to start where you are, then have something you can talk about. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And be encouraging to people who are doing that. So my mother-in-law recently said that um, she decided that she was never going to buy any new clothes again. She's in her late 70s. She thought she had enough clothes to loft last her lifetime and she's quite a good seamstress so that if she wanted to you know adapt or change any of her existing clothes she could now this decision is not going to save the planet in and of itself but she's doing something 
and she's feeling better about it and she's talking to other people about it and what are the impacts that that makes you know and i realized this the other day is it made me stop and think before i bought a piece of clothing for my daughter thinking does she really need it or are we just in the habit of buying stuff let's not buy the stuff let's do something else so you know not a lot of this is very invisible it's very hard to see the impact anyone's decision makes on something else but if you do nothing you know exactly what's going to happen so you may as well do something Margaret, one of the things you touched on before was short-termism and the barrier that short-termism presents to progress. One of the ideas I love that you wrote about in Uncharted, which is a book about how to navigate the future, was this idea of how humans can regain control by coming together around cathedral projects. I'd love if you could explain mm. that idea and, and what sits behind that thinking. Yeah. Um, so I live about uh, nine miles from one of the great Gothic cathedrals of Europe. And um, and I'm not I'm I'm not a person of faith, but it, I love the building. I love going to concerts in the building. I mean, I even go to church services because the music's so fantastic, and I quite like a quiet moment in the week. Um, and so I became very interested in how these things were built. And what I discovered was, of course, they have no architect. They had they had no architect, so they were started by stonemasons and obviously a community that wanted to build something to the glory of a big idea. But they were started by people who didn't, who knew they wouldn't live to see the finished product in their lifetime, um, and who essentially were making it up as they went along. And, and let's be clear, you know, not all of them turned out as well as ours, you know, quite a few of these fell down, right? But you know, these are stupendous pieces of engineering in a, built in a period, you know, with very few tools and without any map or plan or whatever. And then I encountered this, this quote from Stephen Hawking, who talked about cathedral projects as being projects that really not just last longer than in the human lifespan, but really are an articulation of man's greatest dreams and capabilities. And so I started thinking, okay, so what are today's cathedral projects? And one of the things I thought about was the Human Genome Project, which I'd written about uh, in my earlier book, A Bigger Prize. I thought CERN, the European Center for um, Nuclear Research, is absolutely a cathedral project. And then I thought about, you know, cathedrals that are indeed still being built, like the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. And what's very clear about all of those modern day projects is you get this very interesting combination of what I think of as tight and loose, which is there's a very tight definition around what are we here for? What is the big ambition? And so the human genome project, it's to learn everything we can about genomics in service of natural life. At CERN, it's to learn everything we can about nuclear physics for peaceful use, right? So that's a, that means there's all sorts of stuff we're not going to do, but there is one kind of overriding North Star-like ambition. Within that, all kinds of things are possible. 
And it's really fascinating that they tend to work on five-year plans because they can't think further out than that because if you take a play, either the Human Genome Project or the or CERN, the discoveries that they make along the way will determine what happens next. And they can tolerate that uncertainty mm. because they know there's no other way to do this. You can't predict a discovery because if you could, it's not a discovery, right? So at the, at the Sanger Institute, which is now where the Human Genome Project resides, they have a five-year plan, which is loosely, you know, we're going to spend X amount, and it's roughly going to go into these areas. But when, a, when some new discovery makes something possible, they may very swiftly pivot to that because suddenly there's an area where we can see there's an opportunity for a breakthrough and we should go for it. So it's very tight in terms of excellence but it's very loose in terms of how are we going to do it? The what is rock solid and the how can be quite fluid. And I think increasingly in the very uncertain times in which we live, this is pretty much the only way to manage. You know, as people, I mean, right now we have a, a really extraordinary situation where economists can't even agree whether we're heading into a, an era of inflation. I mean, for all the, all of our economic knowledge, we don't know if we're going to get a big phase of inflation. So we don't actually know how the world's going to recover economically from the pandemic. So if you're running a, a, a company where you used to think, okay, the economy is going to grow at X rate and you know it's going to be in these sectors and these markets and this is going to be a growth area and that's going to be a declining area. You know, if you're used to all that kind of certainty, this is pretty scary. Um, and you, what you will be inclined to do is to find the predictions that make you happy and believe those, mm. um, which is a, a foolish choice, really. Instead, I think you have to dig deeper and think, what is our organization here for? What is it we do exceptionally well? How do we get better at it? And what is the best current application of our expertise and our resources? And keep reviewing that and saying, should we be spending our resources on something else? Should we be in a different area? But actually think about it. If this is what we are here for, at en on any given day, what is the best expression of all the resources that we have accumulated over the history of our company? Margaret, we titled this series Trailblazers intentionally to want to feature people like yourself who have gone against the grain, who have been pioneers of a, a different way of thinking. One of the things that I'm interested in, you've made a lot of observations about the pull, the lure of the status quo, the certainty of the way that we've always done things, the, the human want to please, that comfort with data than information that, that we like the sound of or that, that affirms what we already believe. What is it that has allowed you to stay true to your North Star and continue to disrupt and trailblaze through your career? Is there any advice you can share with people listening who are hoping to, to take a similar trajectory in their careers? I mean, I would say a couple of things. One is um, just by nature being a bit of a skeptic. When people say things, I think, really? How do you know? Are you sure? But, I mean, as you can tell, I'm deeply comfortable with uncertainty. Very. Um, and deeply uncomfortable with certainty. And I have a very 
clear sense of life as very, being very dynamic. So I don't really assume that what's here today will be here tomorrow. And, you know, when I talk about the status quo trap, what I really, you know, one of the things, examples that springs to mind is, you know, after the banking crisis, when retail really went into a tailspin, almost all the retailers did what they always did. You know, they put on sales, they, they um, fired a lot of staff, they cut costs everywhere they could, and they competed vigorously with each other. All of that was the status quo. Those are the tools in their toolkit. They've been in that toolkit for probably 100 years. And they could, you know, and, and what the numbers showed them, because that's all they were looking at, was that maybe they were holding their own or at least they weren't failing as fast as their nearest competitor. Anybody standing five inches away from that would see it looks like a tailspin. Right? It just looks, I mean, there's nothing original. There's no reason to go into these stores anymore because the clothes are all on the floor. If there's any staff, they're surly and annoyed. And they probably don't have what you want in your size. Anybody could see there was no reason to go shopping anymore. But I think all the data and a very competitive instinct that meant people just measured themselves relative to others, you know, allowed lots of otherwise intelligent people to think, well, we're doing okay. So I guess I have a sort of distance from what I see and what I read and just keep wondering, well, is what I'm seeing the same as what I'm reading? And um, and I'm really interested in the gap between those two things and thinking, okay, so if the companies think they're doing great and um, and the stores look like rubbish, then what's going on here? You know, really, what's what's the problem? How do how do I explain this? So I think you know that's part of it. Is a very kind of naturally disrespectful mind. I don't take received wisdom, um, you know, easily. I think that's a big part of it. I also have a very, I, on some level, very undisciplined mind, which is to say, I let my mind wander a lot. I mean, I read across lots of different subjects. I like almost nothing more than when I go to a town than just wandering around and looking. Uh, before I go and see, you know, whatever one's supposed to see in that town. I like overhearing people's conversations on public transportation. I spend a lot of time on buses looking out the window. I do quite a lot of daydreaming, you know, on my bicycle. I just like looking. I never, you know, I never listen to music or podcasts when I'm cycling. I just spend a lot of time looking and thinking, hmm, what's going on out there? What does it mean? Does it mean anything? Could it mean this? Could it mean that? I don't know. So it's a sort of, I think of it as a sort of street sweeper mind. And what happens is that over time, certain themes just keep bubbling up. And I think, hmm, this idea keeps keeps bugging me. Let me think about this a bit more deeply. And, and then I'll get very, very disciplined and very, very focused when I start digging into it. But I think that combination of you know, very kind of wandering curiosity in everything and anybody. And then a capacity to drill into the stuff that seems interesting or important, I think has really served me well. And I think that started pretty much in broadcasting when, you know, it was up to me to dream up program ideas mm. and then up to me to make the program. Um, but I suspect it's it's probably been a big part of me forever. 
I love that idea of what am I seeing, what am I reading, and going for the gap. And then that phrase you use, street sweeper mind, and that that want to absorb diversely and have lots of different reference points. Margaret, final question for you. We've covered such a wider range of topics today and a lot of people listening are particularly motivated and making a contribution to our, a better energy future. So I wanted to, to, yeah. to end with your motto, which I love, let's not play the game, let's change it. If you were encouraging people to go out and do something off the back of listening to our conversation to change the energy game, what would you encourage them to go and do? Yes, so I tend to think about this because I think people have a huge problem if they want to do something and they don't know where to start. And I think of it as a sort of three-ringed Venn diagram. And the three rings are um, passion. So what is it I really care about or I really love? Need, where is there a real problem? Well, certainly in the climate crisis, we have the mother of all real problems. And the third ring is resources. What do I have at my disposal, which may be skills, it may be people I know, it may be knowledge, it may be a very specific expertise. But where those three things intersect, I think is where to start. So you need the passion because change takes time. You need the passion to keep you going so you don't quit. You need a real problem. And you need resources, which are what are the things I have that I can bring to the problem. In some cases, when I'm, you know, a project I was just working on before we started talking uh, is a project where they need a good communicator. So I can do that. I don't want to be in their institution, but I can help them communicate what they're trying to get done. In some cases, I know a lot of people, so I spend a lot of time putting people together. I say, oh, you want to do that? You should talk to this person. I'll introduce you. I can't use all of those people that I'm lucky enough to meet in the course of my life, but I can fuse people who can get stuff done together. Um, Or I may say, well, if you're trying to set up a business about this, talk to so-and-so because I think he's in that space. I don't know. See what happens. Sometimes resources are money. Yes, I can, you know, help you print your leaflet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, I'll pay for the cakes before we do the litter picking, you know, whatever that is. But, you know, it's very important to think of your resources as your knowledge, your experience, all the people that you know and everything that you know, and what can you bring to the problem that will really help you or people with you get their heads heads around it. That's where I, you know, where those three things, passion, need, and resources intersect, I think is the best place to start. Brilliant. Well, that's going to be the structure for my next journaling activity. Margaret, thank you so much for the critical and the structured and the pragmatic way that you think about the world. You can see how deeply you've thought about um, leadership, management, organizational structure, the big problems that are challenging us. And we feel so grateful to have had the opportunity to pick your brain as part of this series. So thank you so much for making the time to join uh, the Trailblazers conversation. Well, thank you, Holly, for wonderful questions. And, you know, good luck to everybody listening. We need you. We need you to get going. Thank you. Thanks to EY for partnering with us to amplify people following the path of most resistance. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and subscribe to the series. Are you a trailblazer or inspired by a trailblazer? Leave a comment. Let us know. Join the movement.